Hello and welcome to our very first podcast episode of a brand new series called The Waterloo Advantage. I am Dwani Patel, one of your hosts, third year software engineering student, and co-hosting with me is Maya Kanoria, also a third year software engineering student. Today we have our very first special guest, Navya Mehta, who will be talking about his co-op experience at Loblaws. So welcome, Navya. Could you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Oh, definitely. It's it's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, hey guys, I'm Navya. I'm currently a third year student um, doing computer science and finance with a minor in statistics at Waterloo. Um, the last two years have been uh, interesting to say the least, just trying to explore the data science and machine learning landscape. So it's been uh, working at uh, Genworth where I worked as a data science intern working with like insurance products or uh, recently with the Bank of Montreal Capital Markets working on some of their uh, trading algorithms. And most recently at Loblaws as an operations analytics and data science intern, trying to work on some of the product availability and operations uh, uh, questions that ultimately affect like uh, store results. Right, so, um, very cool. Um, so what was your role at, like, the, at Loblaws recently? Like, um, and like which team were you on there? Like what were the, maybe you can like give an example of a project that you worked on there? Sure. So uh, I won't get into a lot of specifics here, but uh, I was actually on the operations analytics team, which uh, essentially focuses on trying to find redundancies or inefficiencies uh, across the supply chain that feeds a lot of your low-plus stores. Is there maybe we have inefficiencies when it comes to certain types of products reaching stores, or maybe we are having some issues with accurately forecasting demand and therefore it leads to like lost sales. So a lot of those intricacies is what we explore. Can we build novel models that can take say certain products and the history of sales that we have for them and effectively recognize where we might be faltering in our processes and can actually improve and optimize. So it's, it's a lot of machine learning. It's a lot of traditional optimization techniques some unsupervised learning it's it's an interesting landscape because there it's not as it's not like traditional ml where you have like a label or zero or a one that you're trying to learn you're actually trying to discover patterns and so it's a different set of problems that we're trying to solve right and so is like loblaws pretty big on their like ml data science team or is this like something that they're recently looking into or you know like do they have like a really big team at loblaws for like data science specifically it's actually a really good team. So some of uh, like a lot of the colleagues that I get to work with, they're like brilliant people across uh, with backgrounds across statistics, business operations, um, chemistry and so on and so forth. You often see a lot of that diversity when it comes to data science, mainly because it brings a different kind of perspective to the question, because at the end of it, the kind of tools that you have to solve a lot of these questions are fairly standard. It's how you utilize these tools that really makes a difference. For example, how do you recognize which kind of significance test might be most appropriate for identifying, say, certain events? Or on the other hand, when you're trying to, say, build deep learning architectures, how do you recognize at a very high level whether the kind of data you're working with or when going into deployment, the kind of data sources you expect to be available 
would best suit what kind of design. So it's a lot of that higher order thinking and that I'm really happy that I get to work with such talented people uh, across the organization and actually get experience with how they work with these problems. So, yeah. So uh, Navya, since this company is very consumer first, your products are being used by consumer. How important is understanding the core business of the company in your role as a scientist? And how does that maybe from something like financial company like BMO? So I think the way that I see it, there are two distinct sides to data science, so like machine learning in general in industry. And I, I would characterize those two sides from my limited experience as uh, business insights and like machine learning engineering of sorts. So what I mean by this distinction is that in some kind of roles, understanding the biz core business is a top priority. And this is specifically true for low block, mainly because in a lot of scenarios, in some scenarios, yes, we are building deployable models, but in other scenarios, the final end goal is not a model. The final end goal might be as simple as a number, or it might be as simple as a set of observations like descriptive statistics that would guide us to make better business decisions. Maybe we find inefficiencies. We don't need models to correct them. We just need a recognition of that inefficiency that like humans can then proceed to correct in our processes. So in that sense, it, understanding the core business is extremely important, mainly because it's the core business that you're trying to optimize. Like you cannot exist in a bubble, just building a model with no knowledge of how that's actually going to be used. So this actually differs from a lot of other situations where the purpose of like the data science role is fairly limited in the sense that it does not blend into the entire organization, but it, but is rather a distinct product. For example, um, again, at BMO, when I'm building those trading models, I don't really need to have a very deep financial understanding of the products that we're trying to model because that's fundamentally abstracted away from the model itself. And yet that is the fundamental distinction. So this was a new experience for me, mainly because when I was transitioning into my role here at Lobla, I spent a significant amount of time actually understanding the different data sources, seeing how they related, how they relate to each other, what are like the data collection procedures. And it's been a refreshingly different perspective on data science as a whole. Yeah, that's very interesting. And from the sounds of it, uh, low block sounds like a very interesting challenge to you, a very new challenge. And one thing that I'm wondering is, do you think low as a company is data science as in, do they apply all these, uh, you know, analytics that you guys come up with to make decisions or do you think they make decisions and then find statistics to back them up? So from my experience, I actually find it to be fairly data first. Again, I, I mean, this is from my own limited experience. I've been here for, for like a slightly less than two months as of now. But what I've seen is a rigorous appreciation for the metrics that we design and the metric and like the insights that we discover, mainly because a lot of these products have a lot of our analytics products have these time frames in which they move into deployment 
and in that sense they aren't just like sidelined as like for namesake so to speak because i mean at least from our experiences i've actually seen past analytics products made by our team actually in production and so like for the types of problems that you um work on would you say most of the problems that you deal on day to day are mostly technical problems or do you also have to deal with like sort of adaptive challenges or people problems on a data science team like is that one of the concerns or not not so much for the role that you are in currently currently so uh i mean i would go beyond the technical problems but i won't call them people problems i'll call them uh business problems and what i mean by that is yes you have a whole set of challenges that you try to uh, optimize for example what is the most efficient way to query a database so that like my spool space is minimized or how exactly do i calculate some metrics such that like my asymptotic runtime is minimized those are fundamentally technical questions that are extremely important when you deal with data at scale however apart from that there are a lot of these business problems to deal with for example you may be like you querying uh, particular fields from a database and trying to like use them to check their predictive power but you actually need to understand where those uh, metrics are actually coming from who is actually calculating them in a business sense are they related to the met- to like the final out- outcome that you're trying to predict and in that sense so uh, maybe you discover abno- abnormalities like variations in some kind of data that you're finding difficult to explain can you link it back to the business processes that were generating it and uh, often if there were like uh, human entry issues or if there is like duplication a lot of those data cleaning issues how do we develop ways to correct them that are fundamentally linked to the way that the data was collected in the first place so this again goes back to like the understanding of business processes mainly because apart from like raw technical challenges a lot of the problems that you try to solve are inherently linked to the operations of the business right and like so would you say privacy is also one like an an issue specifically with the data you work with or is like data collection pretty easy for you guys cuz it's not too cuz you're not dealing with you know too critical data like maybe in a different application like healthcare So yes I don't think that my team at least I don't think I have dealt with any uh data that actually has those privacy considerations as such so I don't think I can speak to that and uh, right what do you say so you mentioned that a lot of your issues are around things like data cleaning and processing and what do you say that that's something that's prevalent industry wide throughout different data science teams across companies or is that a very uh, like low loss specific problem because of all the business logic that exists i actually think it's it's a f- important step in any kind of uh, data science pipeline across any company in any industry and this actually arises from two distinct methods uh, two distinct sources so one of them is the fact that data science as a field is fairly new like the uh, adoption of widespread machine learning techniques in industry probably took place over the last decade or so and compared to that a lot of these companies are far older than that so when this entire uh, this entire wave for uh, ai adoption and like smart business processes as such started a lot of these companies had to migrate their data or actually 
make their old data, which wasn't collected with ML in mind, feasible for ML to be conducted. And so in that sense, there are likely to run into data collection is issues, mainly because the original, original collection procedure was probably optimized for some other reason. Or in a more likely situation, very stringent data collection procedures weren't enforced, mainly because like it, it was a cost benefit analysis where at that point in time, there weren't those significant benefits in the absence of widespread ML to accurate data collection. So in any company, when you deal with large scale data, the first issue might be that, well, it isn't as, it isn't perfectly cleaned as you would expect. And so a lot of that cleaning is mandatory. In at the second level, it's not data cleaning does not necessarily arise from uh, from dirty data as it does with data not suited for your needs. So even in an ideal world with perfect information with the most well refined databases, you would still need to employ cleaning procedures mainly because every specific problem that you're trying to solve say in in an autonomous vehicle company you're trying to build a model that i can actually that can do motion detection and uh, predict how different cars on the road within your lidar sensor are going to move in some amount of time that is a very specific problem that might need the data to be represented or be pre pre present in your matrix or data set in a particular manner while say some other problem which might uh, be like accident detection or like uh, like those emergency procedures in an autonomous car that might need the data to be represented in a different way. So data right. cleaning is that bridge between your central storage and adapting it to the method that you want to represent it as. Mm -hmm. Right. So to, just just like quickly, um, if you had to give like a percentage for like how much you spend on like data cleaning, data parsing, data you know augmentation versus data insights, um, yeah, just like, just a like you know breakdown of like what your steps just, are. Just a break. Yeah. Exactly. Like, what would you say? Like, you know, out of like your time, like you spend sixty percent on data cleaning, forty percent on insights, or like what would you say based on like your experience so far? You found this breakdown to be so. I mean, I don't think it is. Uh, it does service to assign an exact number mainly because of how much it varies. But from my experience, I would say that at least a third of the time is spent on data cleaning itself, and another right. third on data pre processing. By pre processing, I mean feature generations, developing algorithms to extract particular insights, and so on and so forth. And the the final third might be like machine learning pipelines, deployment, and so on and so forth. But again, this right. division differs based on like the data sets we have, because some data sets might be inherently cleaner than others, or some might need like lesser feature generation than others. And so while it varies significantly, uh, from my experience, it's a fairly equal split. Right. Um, and then I know you mentioned that, like, you know, like you said recently that like stuff like AI and ML is just very recently, very new for like, you know, making this deployment, making these pipelines. I'm wondering if like you've had to, like, I'm wondering how your experience has been with management and leadership at your, at your companies. And if you face any challenges around explaining to them, you know, what AI really, uh, what, what value AI really brings, you know, what are the sorts of problems it can work on? Um, or, or, or like, you know, maybe like you, you might've had an experience where, um, 
there's like a huge hype train. And so your management's pushing for data science, but it might not be the right problem. Like maybe speak, maybe speak to more about um, your, your dealing with management and leadership at your, at your companies. So I actually think that uh, at least from my experience, uh, the adoption of AI or ML at the first place does not necessarily come from a hype train, but rather a recognition that it can add business value. And so justifying products or recognizing questions that uh, the business needs to work on also comes from that important recognition of how much business value it is adding, say in monetary terms, say in terms of say discounted cash flows over time, or in terms of say metrics, probably like wastage or shrink or something that's reducing. There's always some method to recognize or to convert your data science projects, the business metrics that are easier to quantify and more importantly, directly linked to whether the business should invest in your project to begin with. And so in that sense, it, it usually has not been an issue that I have experienced, which is like explaining uh, your, the significance of a particular project management. And often it is the case from my experience that uh, when these machine learning teams are often built, the leadership for that technical team in particular is the kind of liaison that you have between uh, your developers and management itself. So that kind of uh, flow of information is well processed and seg segmented. And so communication usually isn't an issue, although it very well differs from organization to organization or project to project. Right. Um, so something very, very interesting that I read in your bio, and I sort of want to get more into it is, is, is sort of questions and your thoughts around data science. Um, like from your bio, I read that like, you know, you, you seem like a guy that like very much loves data, right? And some of the very interesting points that I read were that you see data as a way to understand human behavior. Um, you see data as a way, or data as a tool to find order and chaos. Um, and the last one that I, I thought was very interesting was that you see, um, you, you can see data as like a way to leverage, um, you know, leverage data for the pursuit of meaning. Can you speak to like a bit more about your passion for data and how like, you know, you can pick any of them or like all of them at once. Like how can you, how, how can we leverage data for the pursuit of meaning or, you know, to find order and chaos or to understand human behavior? Like, did you maybe uh, give your thoughts on that? Definitely. So uh, I'll just talk a bit about like the origin of, uh, of that idea. It was that in a sense, data science is not merely like, it comes down to how you view the field. Do you view it in terms of the technical aspects that models involve? Do you view it simply as a summation of say supervised and unsupervised approaches? Or do you view it in terms of the impact that it can have on society? Because uh, when I got into data science, what really fascinated me was was that a lot of those problems that seem computationally expensive or rather a simulation of chaotic systems so to speak are so well modeled by these algorithms so uh, i'll give you an example there is a, a simulation it's called the game of life it's a single person automaton it, it's essentially a game where you do nothing you just start the simulation 
and the environment affects the agent to move through different phases of time, to, so to speak. It, it's a fascinating simulation. You could check it out once. And the idea is that moving from one timestamp to the next is a very deterministic process. There are fixed rules that are being applied. But what's fascinating is that reversing from one timestamp to the previous one is not deterministic at all, because multiple of those states can lead to the same state. So in, in that sense, you put forward a very open-ended question. How do you reverse these simulations? That, that seems fascinating to me, mainly because what seems to be, what is seeming chaos when it comes to like, say, what that simulation is being perceived at at, at different time, or times through your uh, entire duration. You're trying to find relationships or models that can accurately capture that. Well, how exactly do you do that? Do you view your simulation as, say, an image that you're trying to convolve over recurrently over your different timestamps? Or do you view it as an attempt to encode some underlying information, say, a, a vector of thoughts from each of those frames and then find similarities between frames to capture whether one would be uh, the predecessor of the other. So the the idea here is that when you try to model these chaotic systems, there are such interesting approaches and each of them lead to such distinct outcomes is what makes the field so interesting. And when I talk about uh, the pursuit of meaning, it's because there are so many questions uh, that we can work on today that are intricately linked to uh, rigorous data science. So for, uh, as an example, uh, I believe right when um, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, started raging through North America, there was actually an open data question that was posed to academia, which was that uh, multiple rec medical records, including uh, uh, illness histories were released in an in a attempt to find a particular algorithm that can that can match causes with uh, with possible treatments or for example very recently there was there is an open question that's made by uh, the city business collaboration for a sustainable future which is uh, the access to the data that that you have are like corporate climate change disclosures and like this city disclosures for uh, for a lot of their climate policies and the idea is that based on these data sets, which are fairly unstructured, they may be reports, they may be uh, blobs of text, they may be numerical data sets. How do you recognize what projects cities should prioritize in order to say effectively tackle climate change? Or what projects should uh, they prioritize given shrinking budgets that are most likely to say add jobs and pull places out of recession? So in that sense, a data science is a very potent tool, mainly because its underlying premise, which is trying to find relationships, assess their significance and strength, is something that can be so easily and so uh, uh, fundamentally applied at scale to pressing problems. So um, like, that's some really interesting topics you brought up, especially the game of life. That's something that I have read about myself. Uh, and something that I've been wondering uh, myself is data science and machine learning are very powerful tools, 
but do you think of them as tools to help maybe programmers or do you think of them as tools that would replace programmers or maybe other jobs i mean artificial general intelligence is quite theoretical at this point and i i do not i mean i i don't think i'm the most qualified by a distance to comment on this but I, uh, there isn't exactly a way that you could posit that any advancements in artificial intelligence are fundamentally destructive to the notion of employment so to speak in the sense that yes there are jobs that can be fundamentally automated away may it be say manufacturing roles where uh, identifying defects and uh, streamlining the assembly line might be something that say models might be more equipped to do but at the same time it opens up a host of new issues that need humans to resolve so in that sense it comes down to businesses investing in upskilling their workforce because yes some current roles can be automated away but that simply means that newer roles and newer responsibilities need to be addressed mm -hmm. for example uh, models aren't perfect that you can go online and you'll find fascinating examples where of adversarial attacks where say you have um, a model that say trained to recognize animals this is just a general example you can change one pixel in that image to make say a zebra appear like a rhino but we will need to think about but that is the very idea of one pixel adversarial attacks which is that you recognize what kind of relationships the model is placing on different patches of the image to be able to conduct your classification and you can intelligently choose a single pixel that can throw off your calculations so when you think of right. a human do you think that changing a small subset of an image is so drastically going to change your output probably not so in that sense adversarial attacks is a fascinating example of how human assistance is fundamental to deploying artificial intelligence at scale right and so um like you know it's a good example of a question that like the data science sort of struggles with today right like the adversarial attacks but um can you like what other questions do you think like data science struggles with today um but maybe could help with with the with in, in the future like maybe today we don't have that many good models or that many good techniques but you can you know foresee that in the future this data science will help these will help us answer these questions so some uh, uh this is just uh, some of my personal opinion which is that a lot of the data science that we currently have is fundamentally limited by the hardware that we possess to train it and what this essentially means is that two things here number one a lot of your advanced models that already take a lot of time to train on a single batch say you build a, a multi-head convolutional network that passes several images through a convolution and then trains on their embedding something that's fundamentally heavy you, you take like a unit for example or you take like a conditional generative adversarial network those are large models that fundamentally take a lot of time to train and if you couple that which with large databases say think about big data think about businesses having records of multiple processes across the company 
and when you combine the two you just run into impossible training times you add cross validation into that where you train on subsets and try to evaluate your results on your validation data and that compounds your training time even more and that essentially means that either companies cannot adapt adopt data science because like the time that will take to train and like run models on data is just not feasible for the business for is not sensible for business processes think about like say a real time uh, uh, like think about an object detection model that takes hours to train or takes weeks to train and what it and therefore what that means is that you are either forced to work with limited data when training your models or you're forced to work with simpler models when working with large data for example if you have data running into the billions of rows it's not likely that you'd be using uh, fancier recurrent neural networks or something you'd probably go for like more for like classical machine learning approaches in, including like tree based methods or uh, so to speak in order to address say classification or regression problems that essentially means that as a fundamental consequence of the scale of your data set you are limited in the approaches that you can use and so that is kind of a hardware constraint because i mean i i think uh, i was just reading up about this for uh, the last week there was the idea of moore's law the idea that uh, we can build processors that are an order of magnitude fast every couple of years that essentially stops holding the moment you reach fundamental limits and in that sense do we see ai being limited by the hardware that we have to train and run inference on it and so this is a fascinating field mainly because uh, i've been reading about tensorflow lite and the idea of tiny ml and the idea that a lot of our current machine learning models might be might be exactly adapted for scale to be able to run on say low power low memory devices and that i see as the most fascinating trend because that means that we are now trying to democratize uh, like the deployment of models so to speak trying to put it at as many user endpoints as, as possible and i think that that is one of the most powerful trends we have because stake like something like gpt3 which is one of the most powerful linguistic models made till date that needs several gpus and tpus to even run a single inference on yeah gpt3 is very impressive but i heard they had to use like over like a country's like uh you know power just to train all that data and like the amount of energy exactly. so to it now when you now if you need that kind of scale to train ai models and because any kind of innovation if you're trying to build a model better than gpt3 that would essentially involve you likely need more complex model like a more complex architecture to capture relationships and so your training time your inference time it continues to increase which keeps putting it out of scope of daily applications so how exactly do you make these revolutionary models accessible for immediate use and that is where a lot of this these ideas into like miniaturizing these models comes into play and that is a really fascinating thing so uh you brought up a pretty important point that a lot of machine learning applications are restricted by you know the scale of gpus and power you need to actually train them 
Uh, do you think that fundamentally leads to a kind of monopolistic, uh, like, you know, sense in the field where some companies have the power and have the resources to create these models and it's up to them whether or not they want to share the these models. So for example, OpenAI is a for-profit organization. So they could very well create all these models with the huge funding they have, but what is what exists to restrict them from keeping it for themselves and having this monopolistic kind of stance in the industry? I mean, I wouldn't necessarily comment on the monopolization of data, but I go to your first point about different businesses having a differing amount of ability to like host data science projects. And that is fundamentally true. And it arises from, from two d distinct sources, one of which is being rapidly addressed, the latter not so much. So the first one is that you need significant infrastructure, which is your GPUs, your TPUs, in order to support training times. And and that is a fundamentally high investment for uh, companies to make, mainly because your returns are fairly delayed. You, if you build, if you start building, say, a data science project today, and depending on the scale of the project, a larger projects that involve company-wide transformation are likely to take time, maybe three months, six months, a year, two years, which means that the returns, the business returns that you're expecting from that project are likely to be significantly delayed a few years down the line, while the investments that you're forced to make into not only hiring like your machine learning talent, but also setting up your uh, data, setting up like your data processing, your GPUs, that needs to be made at the present. And so that delay often means that a lot of companies may not necessarily have the financial resources to make an investment of scale. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is if they actually do end up making that investment, they there would be a focus on immediate returns from a lot of your analytics projects that may again introduce inefficiencies. So yes, uh, the amount of resources that you need to set up a lot of your uh, analytics teams, as well as maybe the delay that you have in like actually getting outcomes is significant in affecting whether different businesses actually adapt or actually adopt these processes or not. And at the same time, it's not just about uh, setting up like your GPUs or your uh, those processing centers, because there is a lot more that goes into your um, in, into your entire machine learning pipeline that a company not doesn't necessarily have in place if it's just starting out in the space. For example, you may need uh, to have a lot of your data, a lot of your uh, like data sets hosted on a database that's easily accessible to uh, to the scripts that run to train your machine learning models. You might you might need a system that uh, to host your models such that they can be run in real time and integrated with business processes. Building a lot of this technical infrastructure also costs money and takes time. And so that adds to that delay factor that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you think the availability of data is a similar problem in the sense that are some companies restricted in the amount of data they can procure to train models? Or is that something that's not a 
too big of an issue in the field? So that, that's again two sides of a coin in the sense that in one sense there is so limited data is not exactly as much of a problem in certain applications as the excessive amount of data. For example, uh, say you're dealing with um, like a video streaming company, like trying to build recommender systems for them. Or say you're dealing with uh, a social networking side where you're trying to find like the best friends to recommend, something on those lines. The amount of data that you probably have is humongous. You have information about, uh, in the case of a recommender system, about every movie that was watched, the number of minutes that the movie was watched, where the pauses were taken in the middle, what kind of similar movies were seen, what other users have seen who also liked that particular movie, how much a particular movie was rated. And that is a very high dimensional vector that you have for any particular user or any particular user movie combination. So now when building any recommender system, it needs significant human intervention to recognize what kind of data might have the highest predictive power, whether there might be inherent dependencies that might render some data inadequate. And in that sense, there is that explosion of the amount of information you have. So that selecting the right data sources to build particular models becomes more important. It, on the other side, right. the, in some particular applications, limited data is also an important consideration. Consider, uh, as an example, you trying to build a model to invest in a particular index, say on the TSX or the New York Stock Exchange or something. And there are particular stocks that had their IPO a few years back. And so if you have your daily price information, that's what, that's say around 252 tra uh, trading days in a year, multiplied by say three or four years of data that you have, that's say 750 to 6,000 data points at the maximum that you have to be able to build predictions on. So in that sense, your data might be limited right. because the space between two simul two uh, adjacent recordings is a whole day. And maybe that's not enough data points to be able to build, say, an autoregressive model that tries to predict uh, like the direction of movement or something on those lines. So it is a combination of both because there is so much data that you could possibly use. Take the stock example. You could possibly run like a semantic analysis on tweets to see what uh, like public opinion is on that particular field. Or at the same time, you might run like similarity with different stocks in, in that same sector and see how they are performing in order to like transfer the analysis here. And so it's, it comes down to number one, right. selecting what's relevant. And that is like the main question at the center of this all. Right, um, that's very insightful. Um, and then, I want to sort of like ask some more questions on because it seems like you've been doing data science for a couple of years now. You know, like you've, you you did it back in high school. You've done it in university for all of your co-ops now. I sort of want to pick your brain around the insights you've learned throughout this process. So I guess we can start with collaboration. Like, do you think collaboration has changed two years ago when you were working on data science compared to now with, um, you know, having Jupyter notebooks that didn't exist before or having more easy ways to share data or like, can you comment a bit more on how you've seen the field change over your, like, you know, the two, three years that you have been working? So, I mean, uh, firstly, a disclaimer, the two, three years that I have is likely not 
does not encompass all the fascinating changes that this field has seen. But uh, from what I can remember, I've seen when I started, say, building my first model, I think pandas or even calculated on a lot of these open source frameworks that support a lot of your development were several orders of magnitude releases behind in the sense that I, I believe uh, the current pandas version runs into like the 1.0s. The first version that I think I worked with was maybe a 0.1 something. I don't remember. The point being that open source has developed so much over the last two years, trying to build build better frameworks that actually meet the use cases that people in industry have. And so the actual product, a lot of these, the support that these open source frameworks have built is amazing because it not only simplifies a lot of the development process, but it streamlines it, it makes it more efficient. And a lot of these new releases, uh, new libraries that have um, come forth mainly to meet very specific niches in the industry. So I take an example of PyCarrot, which is uh, a library that has a very fascinating feature, which is model comparisons. The idea that simultaneously, can you view, say, a particular amount of process data and how it fits to a multitude of models across folds? And a lot of this functionality likely had to be built from scratch a lot of years ago. but now that like a lot of these uh, libraries that are that are tried and tested by contributors that are supported by the community now have these features it, it lets you abstract away your processes one step further right if you have a lot of that lower order machinery in place you can try newer approaches you can experiment easily because the cost of experimentation is lower for example if you had to run like a model comparison experiment from scratch would probably take you a day or two to actually build the infrastructure to compare models and then you experiment, which means from this right. point that you make a hypothesis to the point where you decide whether this step is relevant or not in your, uh, in your pipeline, it probably costs you a few days. The cost of experimentation is high. Right. However, the moment that you have a lot of these lower order machineries built into your libraries, your cost of experimentation reduces significantly allowing you to spend more time and actually like trying and testing right. different approaches and see how seeing how they work. Right. Um, so do you have like a hero or role model in data science that like, you know, you, or like someone you really admire in your field that you sort of like want to meet or, uh, you know, aspire to become? Um, I definitely do. Uh, and I believe that there are a lot of figures across, uh, uh, across like machine learning research who have made tremendous contributions to the field. Everything from like building the first attention mechanism that was made for uh, for like natural language processing to, to the advent of LSTMs to, to like newer um, modifications that came with conditional GANs. Right. And however, the one person that I really uh, idolize is Jan Lecune. He's a French computer scientist. Uh, he works with Facebook AI. And some of the models and some of the work that he's pioneered 
is fascinating across across mobile robotics, computer vision, computational neuroscience, and more. And in that sense, he is right. He's really a role model in the kind of impact that he's had on the field. I mean, very evidently uh, shown by the Turing Award. Right, right. <laughs> um, so I'm curious to like hear your question on like how data science affects like you know other areas of life. Like, do you think having this data science data science mindset uh, mindset impacts other parts of like life? Like, I know I've heard from other people that sometimes you start like optimizing your relationships <laughs> or you start seeing like variables in your relationships. Um, do you think that like you know data science impacts other parts of your life in a positive or negative way? Like, do you I don't you think I have observed anything on those lines to make a reasonable comment here. But I mean, it just I just think that an important skill that it adds is the ability to be critical, in the sense that you might not accept statements at face value, but you are conditioned on this idea of significance. How, what is the likelihood of certain events happening? What is the significance or what is the possibility of certain occurrences being conditioned on others? And that, in that sense, it offers you, say, I'd say a more critical view of how processes work around you. But uh, more than that, I don't think I have observed anything from personal experience. Yeah, right. That's no, very cool. interesting. And something that, you know, I've wondered about is, uh, especially uh, not being somebody who's very involved with data science, what would you describe as like your ideal data science role? So let's say you had all the freedom in the world to choose and like pick and match whatever you want. Like, what would you want in an ideal role? I'd say I... My, I, in my ideal role, I see a balance between the two ends that I had listed earlier, the two ends being, say, business insights and more scalable engineering. And so my ideal role would be fo focused heavily on machine learning research and trying to, like, adapt a lot of your academia research into, like, industry viable projects that can be actually, that, that can actually be used by businesses at scale. And actually building that scalable inference infrastructure that can be used to like run these models uh, real time. And so again, here you see it's a, it's a fine balance between say a lot of your software engineering problems when it comes to numeric computation and dealing with problems that come with like building infrastructure at scale and fundamentally ML uh, research questions to begin with. Yeah, and uh, so something that I know, like knowing you personally, is you try to think of solutions to problems in, like in everyday life. So if you're doing a CS course and you think of an open problem, you'll try to come up with solutions. And one thing I'm wondering is how do you think your data science training impacts those questions and those solutions that you come up with? And do you think data science is very intricately linked to the core CS uh, fundamentals that you're learning at school? So two things here. I think data science is linked to core CS fundamentals, mainly because a lot of the technical problems that you try to address are a link to a lot of the theoretical computing aspects that you study in school. Everything from, say, asymptotic analysis, from um, 
building efficient like building efficient data structures that serve specific needs or say just creatively building algorithms using existing ones that meet particular requirements of the problem so to speak and to address your second question yes i think that uh i really think that the fact that um i've been fortunate enough to work with uh, data science roles through my co-op experiences it actually shapes the way that i would look at a particular problem so i remember one of the problems that you'd mentioned on a recent conversation we had which was how do you measure the efficiency or like the success of a particular nba player based on what position in the draft he was picked like just this is a fairly open problem what metric do you define your success on what is the time frame you're defining success over and just trying to think about these problems right. methodologically methodologically breaking them into like these smaller subsets i i find that process fascinating mainly because it i think it allows you to see a lot of these open ended problems in something that's more manageable something that can be actually answered empirically and in that sense yes it, it is fascinating because right. based on the kinds of projects that uh, an individual enjoys within like the broader domain of like machine learning it's likely going to shape the way that you approach open problems to begin with mm-hmm. yeah right add a <laughs> add a few like philosophical questions like do you think do you think human life and society can be uh, modeled as an optimization problem i mean when you talk about it very theoretically sure there are optimizations to be made but at the same level um there are a lot of these generalizations that you uh, make when talking about optimization problems mainly because whether it's constrained or not constrained what variables are actually trainable or not whether there are some fundamental restrictions maybe like equality bounds that need to be maintained and in that sense modeling the world as an optimization problem is harder mainly because there are a lot of these hidden constraints that might dictate how our behavior should be and also because there is sufficient stochasticity in the way that a human mind behaves so to speak so at a very philosophical right. level sure right. it's an optimization problem but i'm not exactly sure to what extent of an optimization problem it is that it is solvable or that attempts can be made to like mathematically approach it mm-hmm. right and so like what kind of world view would you say you find more appealing like do you think the world is more deterministic or stochastic <sighs> i would say that it is fairly stochastic a very fundamental example is the butterfly effect it's the it's the basis of chaos theory because yes there are underlying patterns to how different things may behave but at a very high level there is sufficient stochasticity that it may compound over time or over phenomena such that your predictive accuracy is fairly low so at that fundamental level sure there is sufficient stochasticity in the way that things operate around us that it is difficult to predict the state of 
every uh, variable at any point in time. Um, because when we try to make models to predict, to simulate our worldview, we make simplifying assumptions. Everything from say, sim take the example of a Markov chain where you assume that every state is only conditioned on the previous one. Does that really hold in the world? Will what happens tomorrow only be conditioned on how things are today? Or are there, is there like some kind of memory that's maintained over time? So in that sense, that is what I meant right. by there being hidden variables and relationships that we cannot model because there are, there are a lot of processes that we do not know exist or we know exists and we do not know how to model. Right. Um, so I just have one more, uh, just like on the same note, uh, do you think the world, um, <laughs> do you think we're living in a simulation? Define a simulation here. That, that that's that's see that's the thing right like uh, the so moment like, you begin to abstract away into philosophy you you reach philosophical nothingness if that makes sense because you're trying to reason about the existence of of a simulation so to speak but fundamentally a simulation can be it is an occurrence that derives meaning from external sources something is a simulation only if it differs from a reference point outside its existence, which can be seen as reality. If you're talking about the world being a simulation, what is your reference point of reality? So at that end, the idea of simulation itself may not be defined. Right, no, fascinating. Uh, you just took the question. <laughs> and, uh, so something that you mentioned while describing your ideal data science role is that you want to work on bringing academic solutions into the real world, if I understood that right. Yep. Is that the kind of impact you want to create? Like, is there some definition of impact that you have in mind that you really want to achieve? Uh, I'd say there isn't any particular definition of impact, so to speak. The way that I envision an ideal role is that it adds sufficient value to the end. So there are two stages to it. It adds sufficient value to business processes and the business processes add enough value to my theoretical version of ideality, so to speak. In that sense, an ideal role would be something where I believe my work makes a positive impact towards say a certain metric or towards certain goals that I think I should strive towards. And so, yes, it's about trying to bring, bring like, to, like I wish to work at that intersection where you're trying to bring a lot of these academic solutions to industry, mainly to address problems that I think are fundamentally uh, satisfying to address problems that are truly elemental to the way we operate as a society. So I gave, I, me I mentioned a few examples before, how can we leverage analytics to build sustainable cities? How can we leverage it to build better policies for climate change? Or um, how do you leverage it to say, improve last mile deliveries and like improve connectedness? Those are very fundamental problems that address like core human needs and core behavior. And those are the kinds of 
open-ended questions that I really uh, would enjoy working on. Yeah, um, that's a really interesting way to approach that idea. I, I understand that even defining impact at such an early stage in our career is very difficult. So like your idea sounds really interesting and it's something that I think everyone should strive to do, like creating positive impact and trying to define what positive means to you. Now, um, I think we're coming to a close. So before we end, would you have any like bits of advice for incoming students or people trying to get into data science or even in general, like life advice that you've just gotten? I don't I'm anywhere qualified to be giving life advice right now. But um, the one thing that I think has really helped me over the last few years is just, yes, it's cliched. It's just the idea of being curious in the sense that every time that you see a new research problem, yes, you try to address it with like the machinery in your toolbox that you currently have, but there is always a recognition that that machinery is never enough. The fact that there, there are always new approaches out there. Uh, consider something fairly straightforward, like uh, consider like the game of life reversal that I was mentioning. Yes, you could treat it as like image, uh, like computer vision problems. Maybe you can treat it as like a image generation problem, probably as like a, like a record network where you view different frames. But at some level, there are always newer methods to visualize your problem set. And so always being open-minded, always like whenever you come across a new method, maybe say spending, hours, spending a few days researching it, understanding how it works, like say trying to apply it to newer problems that I think that iterative process is really helpful. Right. Um, well, Navya, thank you uh, so much. Um, it's been such a great pleasure to learn more about your co-op, your passion for data science and your insight in this domain. Um, I think this has been an amazing first episode with such a humble and intelligent person. So uh, that's it, folks. Uh, see you next time with another episode on the Waterloo Advantage. <laughs>